In this passage, Hebrews 12, 12 to 17, we'll learn about good growth or a rotten root. Good growth or a rotten root. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your holy word. And we pray that you will teach us from this holy word what it means to continue to grow in the Christian faith, to grow in godliness and righteousness, what it means to continue to reject our sin. And teach us, Father, that we ought not to be like Esau. We ought not to be like him and that which desires the flesh and resorts to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Teach us, Father, what this distinction is. May it be more clear in our mind, but also encourage us, Lord. Encourage us to be those that bear fruit, that we might see fruit in our life, be assured and encouraged by the work that you produce in us. And Father, for any of us who need this warning, this warning of the example of Esau, we pray that there will be repentance today, that there will be true conversion, salvation, that you will be glorified because we no longer desire to be like our old man, but be like the new man, the new heart that you have given us. Work in us, Lord, and work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. For we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In this section, chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, we have in the first two verses an exhortation, and actually the first three verses, an exhortation to pursue godliness and righteousness, to strengthen ourselves in the faith and not to go back to our old ways. Verses 15 to 17 describes the old man, the depraved man, the sinful man, and what the sinful man does. So in the first three verses, we have an example of goodness and righteousness, what should be manifested in our own life. And then verses 15 to 17, a warning not to be like that, like Esau of the, the Old Testament book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 25 and following. So in verse 12, what does he tell us to do? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Therefore, in the previous passage, he told us that we will have trials and tribulations because God will chasten us and use the afflictions of our life in order to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, when we hear that, we might be apt to thinking that it's hopeless. We don't have the strength. We are unable to do it that God has left us alone, that it is impossible. Yes, God might have worked in us initially, but we cannot continue in this struggle. We cannot overcome our problems. We cannot overcome our temptations and our weaknesses. 
But he says, no, that's not the case. In fact, he exhorts us, he commands us with the use of imperatives. He tells us, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet. He commands us by telling us to strengthen our hands, our weak hands and the knees that are feeble. And he also commands us to make straight paths for our feet. In the scriptures, the Bible teaches us that not only does the command get issued from God that we must obey, but that we also, by God, are given the grace to obey what He commands. In the scripture, when the command is given to us, to the elect, to those who know Christ, when the command is given to us, God also gives us the ability to carry out that command. He assumes that. He knows that to be the truth. The, the, the truth. For example, in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, And this we shall do if God permits. And this we shall do. We will obey God if God permits. Which means he knows that the grace of God is in us and will work in us as we hear these commands to obey. In chapter 13, 20 to 21, in pronouncing a blessing upon us, he teaches us by verse 21, May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes, when commands are given, when prayers are offered for us to grow in the faith, it is with this in view that God's grace, God's power is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, that we assume that we must keep in mind when we hear this command. Then, when we hear the command in verses 12 and 13, to strengthen our hands and to strengthen the feeble knees, make straight paths, we ought not to think that we can't do it. Because we just heard we can do it. We can do it because the Holy Spirit resides in us. We can do it because the Spirit of grace is in us. We can do it because God's power is at work in us. And what he performed in us at the beginning, he will perfect in us. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Therefore, when he commands us to strengthen our hands and our knees, weak and feeble parts of our being, when he commands us to do so, we are able to do so by his grace, by his powerful grace at work in us. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when he commands us to be strong, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. When he commands us to do these things, don't let it discourage us. He's speaking not only of us, but of others. That is, first, we must be strong ourselves. And then once we are strong, or as God gives us strength day by day, we ought to use this strength to help others who are weak and feeble themselves. If we have parts in our life that are weak and feeble, and we all do, we ought to work at strengthening them, of overcoming whatever our problems are, whatever the temptations are, whatever the difficulties are. We must overcome them by the help of God and then help others. It is often the case that when we are weak, someone else is strong, 
and will say a strong word to us, an encouraging word to us, or even perform a good deed on our behalf when we are weak, when we're despondent, when we're discouraged and dispirited. This often happens. But it also happens to be the case that sometimes we are strong and others are weak, and at the right time, God has put us in that place to say an encouraging word to someone or even to perform a good deed on behalf of someone, and God expects us to do so. Therefore, we ought to always be pursuing strength and growth in our Christian life. Always, always. If we're not progressing, if we're not becoming stronger and stronger, then inevitably we will become weaker and weaker. And if we are weak, if we are feeble, we cannot help ourselves and we cannot help anybody else. That's why he's calling on us to be strong. We are able to do it because God's Spirit dwells within us and His powerful grace is at work in us to enable us to strengthen these weak parts of our Christian life. He's using this figure of speech, hands and feet, to describe various aspects of our Christian life. He's not talking about literal hands and literal feet. He's talking about spiritual hands and spiritual feet. Wherever we need to be strengthened. May we be like that. But this strengthening does not happen based on our wisdom. It does not happen to be the way in which the world wants us to be. Look at verse 13. He says, And make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. We are also commanded to make straight paths. We cannot turn to the left. We cannot turn to the right. We cannot have any crooked paths. We cannot have any bypaths or byways in our life. We cannot be just going here and there, willy-nilly, carefree and carelessly, finding different ways to drive and go on the road and just to look at the scenery and then steer off the road. We cannot do it that way. We have to be completely focused straight ahead on the straight path. Not on crooked paths, not on byways, but on the straight path. Isaiah 35, 8 says that we ought to be on the highway of holiness. On the highway of holiness. Well, how are we going to have the highway of holiness? Where are we going to find the straight path? How are we going to make sure we do not turn aside to the right and the left? Well, it's only going to be based on the Lord and the word of the Lord. The Lord and his word. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Verses 5 to 8. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. How are we going to have strong hands and feet? How are we going to have wisdom? How are we going to know the right way? He tells us right here in verse 5, trust in the Lord, not our understanding, but his his understanding in in his ways. Acknowledge him in everything that we do, and God will give us the straight paths. 
He will make us go on the straight path. And how does that carry itself out in our life? Verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think, well, I've already got it figured out. I don't need to know what he thinks. I don't need to know what his word says. We cannot say that. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear him and turn away from evil. That is how verse 8 will be accomplished. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Like he says in Hebrews 12. He says, if you are following the straight path, the paths of God, then that will strengthen you. That will heal you. That will refresh your body and strengthen your spiritual life. This is what he means here. Further, Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Verse 20, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. That is, the teacher's words are actually the words of God. And to the extent that the teacher's words are the words of God, we better pay attention. We better have our ears perked up and ready to hear whatever God has to say. Verse 21, we should not Forget them. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Keep them both before our eyes and in our hearts constantly. Why? Because verse 20, they are life. They are health. They are life and health. These words are not intended for us to be words of death, but words of life and health. Verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of of life. Our heart is where our hands get the commands. Our inner being commands our outer being. Our inner man controls our outer man. We will choose to say certain words or look at certain things or hear certain things or smell certain things or go to certain places if our heart directs us that way. So, Look to the heart and understand that it is in the heart where all of these truths must be embedded. All of these truths must have their root in good soil inside of our heart. And if they are with good soil inside of our heart, then from the outflow of our heart, there will be fruit, there will be strength, there will be righteousness and holiness. 24. Put away deceitful... Uh, uh, a deceitful mouth and devious lips. Put away deceitful mouth and devious lips. Of all the things he could have mentioned here about the common sins that we have, he chooses deceit and deviousness. Deceit and deviousness. Why would he do that? Because in John eight forty four, Jesus tells his enemies, 
You are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Deceit produces death. Deceit produces death. Satan teaches us to deceive people, to destroy people. And therefore, if we belong to God, if we have a new heart, then we will begin to hate deceit. We will despise deceit. We'll want to uproot it from us. It will cause us to tremble at the thought of telling a lie, of deceiving somebody. We should not do that. In fact, we should get rid of it all, put it away, make it go far away from us. And instead, verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Well, who should be directly ahead of us? The light of the world, right? Christ, if we put Christ, fix Christ straight ahead of us, we won't turn to the right and we won't turn to the left. If it does not match the word of Christ, then we should not do it. If anybody gives you an idea and tells you, well, let's turn aside for a moment. No. If someone says, no, no, you don't have to be so strict. If the word of God says it, you don't need to obey it. If somebody even implies that, then we should reject it. We should always ask people, where does it say that in the Bible? Where did Christ ever teach that? Does the Bible say that? Is Holy Scripture the same as what you're telling me? You're telling me to do something. You're telling me to believe something. You're telling me to go somewhere. You're telling me to do something. And I have some doubts about that. Give me a verse in the Bible that actually teaches that. And show it to me clearly in context. Don't distort it. But in context, tell me where it teaches that in the Bible. And if it doesn't teach that, then that is the crooked path. That's turning to the right or turning to the left. And we should not do it. If it doesn't match the word of Christ, it's coming from Satan. Therefore, verse 26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Therefore, we have to be very, very careful where we walk. Walking is a metaphor of how we conduct our life, how we lead our life. We must be very, very careful, like a watchman, like a guard, who's stationed right there at the gate, right there at the door. We have to be like that. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right, nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Whenever there is any temptation to do evil, our feet must be very quick to stay on the right path. No other path, only the right and true path. Returning to Hebrews 12, 12, 13, it gives us a reason. It gives us a reason in 12, 13, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It is possible, according to this verse, that the limb that is lame may be put out of joint. But we don't want that. Who wants to have a lame limb? Uh, limb? Who wants to have that? Who wants to limp? Or who wants to have only one hand that is functioning? Who wants to have only one ear that is functioning? Or one eye that is functioning? 
Nobody wants that. If they are sensible, if they're thinking straight, if they're thinking properly, if they're using their common sense, nobody wants to live that way. So if nobody wants to live that way, why should we want any of that to happen spiritually? Spiritually to us, we should rather be healed. We should rather want wholeness, health. We want to grow. We want to bear much fruit. This is the way we ought to be. But it is possible, as he's saying here, that we may be put out of joint instead of being healed. Put out of joint instead of being healed. You may say, well, do we have examples of that? Yes, we do. One example of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. 11, 27. We have an example of the Corinthians some of the Corinthians who were approaching the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And notice what happened to them. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. When these Corinthians became weak and sick and died, sleep as a metaphor for death, when many of them became weak, sick, and died, that was because God disciplined them, verse 32. He judged them or disciplined them in order that they might not be condemned along with the world. He took away their health or he took away their life because on the day of judgment, he's trying to say, these Christians, they were Christians, but I had to punish them this way. I had to judge them this way. I had to discipline them this way because of their sin. However, they were saved and they were not condemned or will not be condemned along with the world on the day of judgment. And that's the same with us. It may happen to us like that. But who wants to live like that day by day? Who wants to live like that in the thought that God is tormenting me or afflicting me, he's making me sick, he's making me weak, uh, weak, or he is punishing me by death, why should we want to live that way? Instead, should we not rather be healed? Don't we want to live in a wholesome state, in a whole healthy state, in a healed state? Shouldn't we want that? Of course we would want that. Especially when you're reminded of it, when you are reminded of it, should that not produce within us a desire that says, yes, that's what I want. Yes, that's what I want to do. I want to know how to be that way, and I will pursue it. I will seek for help from the body of Christ, from my brothers and sisters in Christ. I will seek for help. I will do what's needed in order for this part of my life to be healed, for this part of my life to be whole and strong. I want that. And we should desire that. We should desire to be whole and healthy. Never to have any part of our life 
given over to the flesh, the world, or the devil. Not at all. Now he continues his exhortation with how serious this is. Verse 14. He continues to give reasons for his exhortation or his command to be strong and to be straight. Verse 14, with another command, pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all and sanctification. So these are the two things we should pursue. Pursue. He does not use a casual word. He uses a very, very active word or strong word, pursue. This should be something that we want to hold fast to. We should want to grasp it and never let go. We want to pursue it. We should want to pursue it. This is what he's calling us to do. Just like he said, strengthen. Just like he said, make straight. Now he says, pursue. These are very active and very passionate words that he's using to cause us to be encouraged or strengthened or zealous to do that which is right. And these are the two aspects. He says, peace and sanctification. Peace. Peace with all. Peace with all. Firstly, this peace that we pursue is based on the peace that we have with God. We are first reconciled to God, and then we are reconciled to one another. We must always first consider our reconciliation between us and God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not have peace with God through Christ, believing in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are enemies of God. We are alienated from God. We are hostile toward God. We are at enmity with God. Yet, when we are in Christ, then we are reconciled to God. Now we are His friends and even His children. We have peace with God. No more hostility, no more fighting, no more struggle against God. Now we have peace because we belong to Him. We are on His side of the matter not on the devil's side anymore. So, when he teaches us to pursue peace, he assumes that we have the peace of God, peace with God. And because we have peace with God, then we ought to pursue peace with one another. And that is his focus here. His focus is the evidence or the manifestation that we have peace with God is that we pursue peace with one another. We are not looking to pick fights. We're not looking to be argumentative. We're not looking to be quarrelsome. We're not looking for there to be warfare and battles constantly in our life day by day. We're not looking for that. We used to be that way, but we're not that way anymore. We should not be pugnacious people, pugnacious fighters, seeking to have conflict and quarrels all the time. That should not be the case. Instead we should be pursuing peace. In fact, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans uh, 12. Romans 12 
and verse 14. Romans 12, verse 14. 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. Or, excuse me, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And also Romans fourteen nineteen fourteen nineteen. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans fourteen nineteen. Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Well, how does that look in practical terms? Back to Romans twelve. In Romans twelve fourteen and following, he tells us in practical terms how we ought to pursue peace with one another. When those people persecute us, when they are persecuting us, bless them and don't curse them. 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When people are rejoicing, don't spoil it. Don't poison the well when they are rejoicing, but rejoice with them. When they are weeping, Don't criticize them for weeping, but weep with them, assuming that it is a legitimate reason to weep. 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't think that you are better than others. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't just try to associate with those who have power. Power because they have money. Power because they have status. Power because they have influence power because they have uh, beauty, power because of whatever things that they might be able to do for you. Associate with the lowly. Associate with those people who are not able to benefit you in those ways, who've got nothing to offer, but associate with them. Befriend them. Make them your acquaintances. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If someone does evil to you, Don't do evil back to him. If someone tells a lie about you, don't tell a lie about them. If someone steals from you, don't steal something from them. Right? Don't pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Common sense tells us many things about what's right and wrong. This common sense or our conscience was given to us by God. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Notice the qualifiers here. We ought to be pursuing peace with all men. He commands us even in this passage, be at peace with all men. Whether that is your spouse, whether that is your children, whether that is your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, whoever they are, 
pursue peace with them, but with two qualifications, if possible. Sometimes it's not possible. So far as it depends on you. You do, in other words, you are supposed to do whatever God's word commands you to do to make peace with people. But if they don't want that peace, if they are not reciprocating, if they are also not apologizing, if they don't want anything to do with you, they won't talk to you, they won't talk straight to you, then you can't do anything more. You do what you're supposed to do and leave the rest to God, which is what he says in 19 to 21. Leave the rest to God. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If they continue to do evil to you, let God deal with it. Let God handle it. And if you have opportunity to do good to them, then help them and pursue peace with them. But if you don't, then you don't. You just have to leave it to God. Leave room for God to handle it. This is how we ought to pursue peace with all. To the extent that we can, we ought to seek peace and reconciliation with all people and harmony with all people. Not only should we pursue peace, we ought also to pursue sanctification. Sanctification or holiness or growth or strength, as he's been saying in verses 12 and 13. Sanctification is another word, a synonym for holiness or growth or strength in our Christian life. We should be built up in the faith. This is what we should be doing. That sanctification or holiness assumes that we are rejecting that which is troublesome to us, that which is a pain to us, that which is going to destroy us and poison us spiritually. Sanctification. We ought to pursue it. This is the one word or the one concept in the Bible that makes the difference between a, a clear dis, uh, distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. Because we might have this proclivity to saying, well, I'm going to pursue peace with that wicked man over there, but I'm not going to pursue sanctification. So if I'm going to befriend that wicked man over there, in order to be peaceful with him, I have to do some sin. I have to do some wickedness, because if I don't do it, then he's going to be my enemy. And the Bible says we're supposed to be peaceful with everyone. We're supposed to be in harmony with everyone. But no, the Bible tells us to pursue peace if possible, so far as it depends on you, but not to the extent that you sin, which is why he says sanctification. We cannot have peace without sanctification. Then it's not true peace, it's compromise. Whenever there is peace with wicked people and practicing wicked things with them, then that becomes compromise. That's worldliness. That's fleshly and carnal. It is not true peace the way the Bible means peace. There must be holiness. That is the boundary to the peace that we pursue with people. And it is this one concept. 
of holiness or righteousness, sanctification, that will make the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. This is the point at which individuals are at a crossroads and they will need to decide, are they going to continue on the right path or go on the wrong path? Because at this point, when the preaching of holiness is here, that's when the human heart or the sinful human heart will say, no, that's too strict. No, I don't want to do that. No, they kick and scream. They're stubborn in their rebellion and they say, no, I want to do whatever I want to do and I'm going to go and listen to somebody else who will tell me something better, who will tickle my ears, make me feel good and not make me feel like I need to give up my sin. But here, the true believer pursues sanctification. He pursues holiness. He knows in truth what he needs and he knows it's good for him. He knows that. The true believer will rejoice in it even if he needs to repent of sin. Even if he needs to mourn over his sin, he will want holiness in order to be right with God or to be closer to God than he was the day before. The true believer will pursue holiness. He will pursue it like this. He will struggle against his own flesh in order to pursue sanctification. I said he gives us another reason here in this verse. He gives us another reason to pursue peace and holiness. Will we do so? Well, he says, without which no one will see the Lord. Without which no one will see the Lord. It's a matter of life and death. If we don't pursue true peace, if we don't pursue true holiness, if we don't pursue them, then we will not see the Lord. That is the Lord in his favor. Certainly we will see him. All of us will see him on the day of judgment. But will we see him in his favor? Will we see him in his mercy? And will we see him in his loving kindness? We will if we pursue peace and sanctification. We will not see him in his favor, in his kindness and goodness, long-suffering on that day of judgment if we are not pursuing peace and sanctification. We must do so. We must be this way. Matthew 5, 8. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are children of God, beloved children of God. God dearly loves us and he has made promises to us and we don't know yet what the full experience is of those promises. It says, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We have tasted a morsel of what we shall be. We have a foretaste of what we shall be. We have eaten a little bit of it, but we have not partaken of the full feast. We don't know yet 
what we shall be in the full sense of the word. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We shall be like him when he appears. We know this, that we will have immortality. We will not have any of these weaknesses and sins of the flesh anymore. We will be just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because we're going to see him in his favor. Those to whom Christ wills to reveal himself in his favor will immediately reflect him in his glory. When we see the immortal and radiant Christ in his glory, immediately, because he has his favor towards us, his grace towards us, we will immediately be just like him in the twinkling of an eye. That's what he's talking about here. That's the kind of glorious eternity that we shall experience with him when we see him. And in the meantime, how does he describe us? Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Pure. If we keep Christ as our focus and the return of Christ as our focus and the nature of Christ, his perfection, his glorified immortal body, if we keep that before us, then we purify ourselves just as he is pure. If we don't keep Christ set before us, we don't do that, then we're not going to pursue purity or holiness, sanctification. But if we do, we will pursue purity to be able to see the Lord in his favor, to see him in all his glory and not shrink away from him. Because there is a dual outcome, the one or the other. 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. 2.28, little children, abide in him, remain in him, meaning pursue peace, pursue sanctification, pursue purity, so that when he appears... His return. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Either we'll have confidence or, or we will have shame. It's one or the other. This is why we ought to be strengthening ourselves, making straight paths, pursuing peace and sanctification. Because without which any of these things, no one will see the Lord. Let's desire to see him. Now he gives us an example. He speaks generally in Hebrews 12, 15. In Hebrews 12, 15, he speaks generally, and then he specifies with an example in verses 16 and 17. First is a general statement in Hebrews 12, 15. Now we come to a warning. A warning those who will shrink away from Christ in shame at his coming. Verse 15, see to it 
that no one come short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now you might ask, is he not writing to the believers? Is he not writing to the church? Is he not writing to those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes, he is. He is writing to them, but among them, among the people who profess the faith in any visible local church, in any congregation, in any place where professing believers meet, inevitably there will be false believers, false brethren, weeds among wheat. There will be those in any group of professing Christians. That's why he's saying, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He's saying, make sure that you are not among them. Make sure that you are not one of these that I am about to describe. Make sure, chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. He's saying, make sure that when the promise is held out to you, when the promise is preached to you, that you do not come short of receiving that promise. By coming short of receiving that promise, what he means is that when grace is preached to you, if you reject that grace, then you are short of that grace. If you don't accept this grace that is preached to you, this abundance and eternal life that's preached to you, if you don't receive it, then you are short of it. Another example of this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 1. 6, 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God is preached, but if you don't truly believe it, then you are receiving it in vain, therefore you are short of it. Meaning, you don't really have it. You don't really grasp it. It's not really yours. It doesn't truly belong to you. Galatians gives us another example. Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5 and verse Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 you have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by law you have fallen from grace severed from Christ seeking to be justified by law fallen from grace fallen from grace the same concept the people don't truly trust Christ, so they are severed from their profession of faith in Christ. They are severed from Christ, separated from Christ, because they have claimed to believe in Christ, but they are also seeking to be saved by works of the law, so they don't truly believe in Christ. If they don't truly believe in Christ, they have fallen from the grace that was presented to them, that was offered to them, that even they stayed in temporarily by their profession and by their practice temporarily. 
If they temporarily stay in it, then they weren't truly in it. They were people who eventually manifested rotten fruit because there was a rotten root. There was no true growth in them, no bearing of good fruit in them. And that's why he says you have fallen from grace. You are severed or separated from Christ because I see who you truly are. You want to be justified by works, not by faith alone in Christ. This is the same as what he's saying in Hebrews 12, 15. He's not teaching that once you have truly experienced the salvific grace of God, that you can lose your salvation. He's not teaching that. He's teaching that when salvation is presented to you, when it's preached to you, and even if you claim to embrace it, if you claim to believe it, but your life doesn't show it because you're not strengthening yourself, you're not making straight paths, you're not pursuing peace, you're not pursuing sanctification. If these are not true in your life, you will not see the Lord and you are short of the grace of God. The grace of God is extended to you, but you did not truly grasp it. You did not truly take hold of it for your salvation. And how does he know? Verse 15, Hebrews 12, 15, he says, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. He says, there should not be in any of us a root of bitterness springing up causing trouble and by it many be defiled. Another analogy, agricultural analogy, he's saying there are some roots that are bitter roots or poisonous roots, unfruitful roots. Roots that are there, they are real, they are actual, they do cause some growth in the plant, however, they don't produce good fruit in the plant. They don't produce edible fruit in the plant, nothing that is usable to us. There are roots like that. He calls it here a root of bitterness. And when this root springs up, it causes trouble because it doesn't produce any fruit that is of benefit to us. And in fact, this root causes the whole plant to be defiled, to be worthless, to be impure, to be poisonous, to be unhelpful to us. We cannot partake of those plants. The root produces the bad fruit and it causes the whole thing to be defiled. Let's see also examples of this concept in Scripture. The analogy that he is using here is most likely taken from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. In this chapter, Moses, before his death, he preaches to the people a farewell sermon and he warns them about what's about to happen to them because he knows the kind of people they really are, what their heart is really like, and how they have been behaving while he has been alive. And so he says, Deuteronomy 29, 29, and we'll begin reading at verse 17. 29, 17. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, 
silver and gold, which they had with them, lest there shall be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. See there? He says, when you worship idols, I'm going to know that when you worship idols, your heart had already turned away because the heart causes the hands to do things, right? The inner man causes the outer man to act. So when the heart turns away, it will worship idols. And at the root of the heart or in the heart was this root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. A root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Turn also to chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, 32. Deuteronomy 32, 32. Moses writes this song and he teaches this song to the sons of Israel before he dies. And in this song, this is what they're supposed to sing of themselves. Notice this. Teach this song to the sons of Israel that it may be a witness against them. For I know, he says, I know that after my death, you're going to behave more wickedly than while I was alive. And 32.32, he says, For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. He describes their sins being just like the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of Israel who should know better and not behave like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you're going to behave just like Sodom and Gomorrah and you're going to have vines, grapes, clusters, wine, just like them. And how? Because they are grapes of poison. They are bitter. They are like the venom of serpents, deadly poison of cobras. Who they are on the inside will show on the outside, and the whole plant is worthless and deserves to be cut down and burned up. That's what he's describing here. That that which is on the inside will manifest itself on the outside. First Samuel, first Samuel twenty-four, 1 Samuel twenty-four, thirteen. David here repeats a proverb, a true proverb, to describe wicked people. Not that he is wicked, but that his behavior shows the very opposite. And therefore, he's trying to teach how wicked people are manifest, but he's not wicked. 1 Samuel 24, we'll begin at verse 12. 24, 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancients says. Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David says that he's not going to put Saul to death, even though Saul wants to put him to death. He's not going to do evil. He's not going to return evil for evil. He's going to pursue peace with all. 
but he's going to leave vengeance to God. God will take care of you, King Saul. But you should notice, Saul, that because I am not behaving against you in a wicked way, that I am not a wicked man. Because out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. If I were wicked, I would, I would do evil against you, King Saul, but I am not evil. You should understand, it's obvious that wicked people in their hearts, if they're wicked in their hearts, it will show in their life. But I'm not like that. Matthew 7, our Lord Jesus taught us the same thing. Matthew 7, 16. Matthew 7, 16. 16 to 20. You know them, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Our Lord here teaches us the same as what we've read earlier, that it is only two kinds of fruit. Either there is good fruit or there is bad fruit. There's either good fruit or there is bad fruit. If the tree is good, assuming that the root is good, if the root of the tree is good, it will produce good fruit. But if the root of the tree is rotten, it will produce bad fruit or rotten fruit. That is what will happen. You will know them by their fruits. Know them by their fruits. And if they have rotten fruit, then they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. But if they have good fruit, then they are usable in the sight of God and receiving the glory of God or the praise of God for producing good fruit. So this is true of everyone generally. Either we are wicked and produce wickedness, or we are good and produce goodness. Either one, one or the other, good or evil. And therefore in 12.15 he says, make sure none of you have this root of bitterness that springs up, causes trouble, and defiles you. Make sure that that's not you. 16. A specific example, Hebrews 12, 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Here it calls Esau, Esau who was one of the sons of Isaac and Rebekah from Genesis chapter 25. We can read about Esau beginning in Genesis 25 all the way to chapter 36 of the book of Genesis. If you want to do a study of the life of Esau, Genesis 25 to 36, and then Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and Romans 9, 10 to 13. From these passages, it is very evident, very clear, that Esau was an unbeliever. He was a reprobate. He was a wicked man. He never believed. And he had a household of belief in that Isaac and Rebekah were his parents. So he heard the truth of the gospel, but he did not believe the gospel. This is why 
He takes a clear example from the Old Testament book of Genesis and even Malachi 1, 1 to 5 to teach us that this obvious example is an example of what I'm talking about, he says. I'm talking about Esau, also called Edom. He was immoral and godless. Immoral and godless. The word immoral has to do with sexual immorality. Your Bible might say fornicator. He was this in this way. And in this sense, I think he means, generally speaking, he was this way. Though the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, outside of the Bible, there is evidence that there was a long, long tradition of Jewish interpretation that took Esau to be a fornicator in the sense that before marriage, he had sexual relations with women, and therefore he was a fornicator or immoral man in that way. And he refused to repent of that. And then after he married, this we do have in the Bible, we do have in the Bible examples of Esau marrying women who were idolaters and maybe even immoral women. Idolatrous women. We have examples of this in the Bible. For example, for example, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. 26, 34. And when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basimat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. They brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Why would these women bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah? Because he married Hittite women. These were not women among the believing relatives, but these were women who were from foreigners who worshipped idols. So when he did this, he also practiced sexual immorality in a way in that he lusted after them and didn't care about their idolatry. He did not want to marry one among the relatives as Jacob did and even as Isaac did. He married them. Another example of this we find in chapter Isaac, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 27, verse 46. 27, 46, where we read of what Rebekah says to Isaac. Genesis 27, 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebecca is telling her husband Isaac that she's tired of living in the presence of these wicked women that Esau had married, and he doesn't, she doesn't want Jacob to marry one of them also. And Esau knew what he was doing. Chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 8. 28, 8 and 9. Esau knew full well what he was doing. 28.8. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, and Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalat the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabaioth. He knew that those women he married 
the daughters of Canaan displeased his father, Isaac. He knew that. But because of that, he went in order, perhaps, to alleviate the displeasure, to marry someone who was closer in the family, went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabiot. He married one of them. <coughs> Either he did this to alleviate in some way this problem, or he did it in order to exacerbate the problem. Because he didn't solve the problem fully, so in a way, he exacerbated the problem too. Whatever the case, he knew what he was doing, and he did not go to the full extent to repent and do what he should in his life. He did not go to the full extent to repent and do what he should in his life. He was a godless person, it says. Hebrews twelve sixteen. He was immoral and godless. He did not want to have anything to do with God, the holiness of God, like the sanctification and the peace of verse 14. He did not want anything to do with those kinds of virtues. And it's manifested in the first instance in him selling his own birthright for a single meal. He sold his birthright. Now, the birthright had to do with the firstborn. It had to do with the blessings of the firstborn, but it wasn't merely a matter of material possessions. The material possessions, as they were taught and as they were transferred as an inheritance from father to son, they were there as a token of eternal life, a token of the life to come, that there would be these blessings, innumerable double blessings in the life to come, and that if one believed in the life to come, he would want to hold on to this inheritance tenaciously. He would never want to let them go. But in Esau's mind, the life to come was worthless to him. He didn't believe in it. He didn't truly believe in it. So he took those promises of God's grace as worthless and useless. He spit upon them and rejected them. And that showed by him giving up his birthright and he was willing, willing to sell it to his brother Jacob for just one meal. For just one meal. Oh, I'm really hungry. I came out from the field. I'm really hungry. Let me have some of that meal. So Jacob gives it to him, but says, first swear to me, give me your birthright. So he gives it to him. He sold his birthright for a single meal. This showed how godless Esau was. He did not care about eternal unseen things. He did not care about the life to come. He did not care about eternal life. He did not believe that he needed to prepare himself for the day of judgment and the lake of fire to avert the punishment of the lake of fire. He didn't believe in any of that. Verse 17 further explains his wickedness. This happens later in Esau's life. Later in Esau's life, when Isaac, his father, was about to die, it was too late for Esau to receive the blessing. He gave the blessing to Jacob. And then this is what he does in 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, 
though he sought for it with tears. Later in life, he desired to inherit the blessings that Isaac pronounced on Jacob, his son. He desired to have those blessings, but he didn't want repentance as the means to acquire those blessings. That's why it says he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. Esau did not want repentance. He wanted the blessings without repentance. Today we say people want to have their best life now and later. They want their best life now and later. They want to live a posh and luxurious life now with all the health and the wealth of the world right now, with all of the fame and fortune and fun of the world right now. People want to live that way now, and then they want it to continue that way in the life to come forever and ever. If golf is their, if, if golf is their gig, they want to play golf now, and they want to play golf in heaven. If football is their gig, they want to do it now, and they want to do it in heaven. If smelling flowers is what they want to do now, they want to do it now, and they want to do it for all eternity. Whatever it is, whatever it is, the addictions and the idolatry of today, whatever it is now, they want to do it now and forever, and they don't want anybody to tell them to repent. The people who think this way want to have everything now and everything later in the life to come without changing anything about their values, anything about their mind, anything about their mouth, anything about their movements. They don't want to change anything about what they do. They just want to live however they please right now, and they don't want God to tell them, no, 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 that's a sin. You must repent of that sin. And the moment they hear the word sin, repent, hell, they'll walk away. But that's, that's the way Esau was. Esau was that way. Now, there might be a bit of confusion here in verse 17. A confusion for two or three reasons. One reason is, it says he sought for it with tears. What did he seek with tears? Well, just as I explained, I believe he sought for the blessing without the repentance. Because he found no place for repentance. He sought the blessing without repentance, and he sought for the blessings with tears. We can read about this in Genesis 27, that he sought for this blessing with tears, but without repentance. And people do that. Let's look at two examples of how people do it. One general and one specific. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians 7, verse 10. 7, 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. He uses the same word, sorrow. We could say tears. We could say grief. We could say mourning. However we want to describe this action, He says there's two kinds. There is that which is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. 
So if there is true godly sorrow, it will produce repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But there's another kind, the sorrow of the world produces death. That was Esau's. Esau's sorrow with tears was a sorrow that produced death because there wasn't any repentance. There wasn't any repentance according to the will of God which produced salvation and no regret. A specific example. A specific example we find in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, after Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ and after Christ was Sold, this is what it says Judas did. Matthew 27, verse 3. 27, 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Judas here realizes in his conscience, his conscience is pricking him because we all have a conscience. His conscience pricked him so much that he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He felt remorse or sorrow or grief, tears. He felt that he goes to the chief priests. He wants to return them, but they say, no, I don't, they don't want it. So then he throws the money into the sanctuary because he still has a conscience. He doesn't want to hold on to the money. He wants to give it away. He throws it into the sanctuary of God because he wants to think that I'm giving it back to God. I took it from God, but I want to give it back to God. I want to make it right. But that's not going to make it right. He even has the correct words, verse 4. Judas Iscariot has the correct words. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He has the correct words, but he doesn't have repentance. Or he doesn't have the correct repentance. Why? Because he went away and hanged himself. He did not believe. He did not believe. Until the very end. But he hanged himself because the grief was too much to bear. Here, too, with Esau, he's teaching us that we should not be like that. When we know the right thing to do and we do not do it, it is sin. James 4, 17. Therefore, the right thing to do is to believe the gospel. The right thing to do is turn away from sin, to have true repentance, not a fake repentance. Now, one more thing that we must clarify is... Doesn't the Bible teach that people, people can repent at any time or that they can repent on their deathbed? They can believe on their deathbed? Yes, that is true. For example, the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, the thief on the cross, he actually did repent and believe when he was on the cross. If we want to say deathbed, that's the closest biblical example we have of a deathbed Conversion. He did repent. That, now that is true, that that may happen. But there's no guarantee that that will happen to you. Right? That's the issue. 
The issue is not whether it could happen. That's true, it could happen. But it could not happen as it did with Esau. It did not happen with Judas. And it may not happen with you. It may not happen with any of us, right? So we must repent now. It is true that it may happen on one's deathbed, but it may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, we will be just like Esau. And it better not be that way. Even in the New Testament, there is a limit. There is a point at which one might go into sin, turn away from God, and, and put his feet into the miry clay of sin. This is why it teaches us in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. God gives people over, just like he did to Esau, and it gets worse and worse for them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2.8. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness." This is what God does. When people do not receive the love of the truth, verse 10, so as to be saved, then God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Like Romans 1. If they persist in sin, God gives them over, then they sin more, and they believe more of what's false. And why do they believe more of what's false? Because God is judging them. In verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. May the example of Esau not be our example. Instead, if we continue reading in 2 Thessalonians 2, may this be true of us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father 
who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. What a blessing. May this blessing be ours. This is the promise. This is the blessing that he has put out there for us. We are brethren beloved by God, chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. That is our topic, is it not, from Hebrews 12, 14? Sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. However, we do have the Spirit. We do have faith in the truth. He called us through our gospel. He called us so that we might have the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him just as He is. So what should we do? Brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions, meaning the apostolic traditions, the Bible. Hold to the word of the Bible. And may Christ and God the Father, who loved us, has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, not by our works, but by His grace, may He comfort and strengthen us in every good work and word. Amen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.